Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hello, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Ray Luzier. For over 10 years, Ray has been the drummer for the Grammy-nominated band Korn, and in 2009, he became an official member of the band. Right out of high school, Ray moved from the Pittsburgh area to Hollywood, California to study at the Musicians Institute. Shortly after graduating, Ray was asked to be a teacher and develop a rock curriculum that was missing from the program. Ray went from being an innovative educator to the drummer with David Lee Roth for five years. Army of Anyone was next for Ray and was the band that brought his name and drumming to the forefront of the drumming community. One of the many projects that Ray has been involved in and continues when not touring with Korn includes the band KXM with Doug Pinnock from King's X on bass and vocals and George Lynch on guitar from Lynch Mob and Dokken. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ray Luzier. People get sick of hearing me say this in interviews, but it's true. I came from a a 118-acre farm in Pittsburgh in the middle of nowhere. So Mm -hmm. there was no musicians in my family. There was no... They loved music. You know, there was always playing. It was always Elvis, the Beatles, Chuck Berry, Zeppelin, you name it. Uh, So it was always around me, and I always found myself, you know memorizing the guitar solo, memorizing the lyrics and tapping on things to the drum parts. And I was always like, just so in it when I couldn't wait for a car ride because I knew the radio <laughs> would be on. And yeah. 
to hear another, you know, uh, to, to hear their song. And actually, I learned arrangements at a very young age just from memorizing songs. And, and uh, I think it's why I have a vocabulary of thousands of songs in my brain. Yeah. Um, but I think it was a good way to not have lessons in the beginning because it just made me really try to figure out how does it, why is that drum part this? And, you know, when I, when I got my first kit when I was five, it was like, you know, you don't know what you're doing at that age. You know, you don't know what anything is. And right. uh, um, so to me sitting down with a, with a Zeppelin record or with ACDC or Rush and, and just trying to do anything I could to play along with it and uh, really was just, you know, it was when I look back, I, I wouldn't, have, wouldn't have changed it, you know. Um, even though there's a lot of five-year-olds, six-year-olds taking piano and drum lessons, and that's yeah. great, mm-hmm. you know. But it just wasn't my thing. So me memorizing it for so many years, and then, you know, when eighth grade hit, they said, uh, you should join the jazz uh, band. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm such a rocker, but, like, I, I want to learn, yeah. you know. And that's my first introduction to a quarter note. I didn't know what that meant, you know. Uh, so it was pretty cool to, to see what that was all about. And, and then that taught me how to be in a band, you know, waiting, you know, uh, counting eight bars before you came in and waiting for this horn part or this, uh, all that disciplinary stuff, um, that I had no idea, you know? Um, so I think it was cool that I waited. And even that was very brief lessons. It wasn't very intense, you know, drumming wise, I still was figuring things out on my own and, and, um, all through high school, I, you know, I did marching band and symphonic and I'd have a cymbal part and you're waiting 32 bars till you crash the cymbal <laughs> and, you know, all the timpanis and, uh, you know, all that stuff. I loved marching. That was my favorite thing to do. I loved um, the aggressiveness of it. And I just, it was just such, such a cool thing. And it really got my playing together on the kit. It sharpened it, you know, chop wise right. and rudimental, uh, and so it was so such a cool thing, I think, to not have any instruction for such a long time. Um, fast forward, you know, well, I guess I should say I started playing in clubs when I was, you know, six, 15, 16. My dad would have to wait at the door because obviously I wasn't old enough to get in. Yeah. I'd play the gig and then he'd have to help me get out. And um, <laughs> but, but I've been I've been gigging forever, you know. Um right. And then uh, fast forward, my guitar player in our senior year, at the time, my guitar player in Pennsylvania said, we need to move out of here because we're not going to do anything in Pittsburgh. And I said, well, let's go to New York. It's close. You know, he's like, we got to go to L.A. You know, this is everybody's coming out of there. And our friend at the time, Paul Gilbert, who's a Mr. Big, right. um, was out there. Um, he lived 10 minutes from us. And a lot of bands, Rat and Poison, all these bands were coming out of there and going to L.A. and yeah. uh and it just seemed like the right thing to do. And I'm thinking, I don't know enough to get into this music school. He's like, there's this school, Musicians Institute, you got to go to it. And I'm like, I don't know jazz, I don't know Latin, I don't know reggae, I don't know how to do anything but play rock and, and metal. And he's like, that's all right, we'll learn. That's why we're going there. Right. And uh, I remember being scared to death to take that entry test because I just, I scratched by it, you know, play a basic swing, play a basic bossa nova, play a, you know, and I pulled it off. They accepted me, and but boy, when I got there, it was a big, big ass whooping. <laughs> well, can, I bet, I bet. And and if I could just just pause you there for a second. Now, it sounds like your interest in and in heavier music happened at an early age. 
And, and it did, you know, it's, it, yeah, I was gravitated towards, even on records, I would listen to the more heavy songs, because mm-hmm. a lot of times the mainstream pop songs would end up on the radio, and I remember, like, when I'd buy the record, I'm like, oh, man, the heavier tunes on this are just, they're so much better, you right, know? Right, um, right. So, yeah, for sure, it, it did happen at an early age. So it sounded like that's kind of where your focus was, that's what you wanted to do. Uh, and you and you joined the jazz band in high school because you know it's like hey I'm going to learn to read I'm going to do this the, the discipline that you sure. you know these are skills that are utilized for all different styles but what was it that made you think it's like well I'm going to go to PIT and and MI and 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 I need to learn to play these how is it that your friend and you you know you're following Paul Gilbert to LA how do you think well you know what I should learn all these different styles. What's what was the thought process? I mean, it's like, is it, you know, I don't need to. I'm not going to be. I don't want to be a casual drummer. I want to. I want to play in a metal band. Uh, was that the thinking, or were you thinking I need to throw everything out at the wall? Well, no, because well, because I was very naive, like all of us are at 18. You know, um, <laughs> I, I was. We literally packed up. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it all, didn't you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, we packed up my my church band. I bought the. Our local church van for fifteen hundred bucks, and we gutted it. It was a fifteen passenger Dodge Maxi wagon, gutted it, threw marshals and kick drums, and I mean there was literally, you know, we drove the whole way across, you know, to go to the Musicians Institute, and yeah. uh, you know it was a it was a big thing. You know, it was like wow, you know, we're actually doing this. And my parents came with me to make sure we got a uh, apartment okay and everything. But when I got there, I was still young and naive, and I'm like, I'm gonna knock everybody down check this out i got these licks and i got i'm just gonna i'm gonna show everybody what's up (laughs) and because i just i really thought that i knew what was going on i was very confident which was good and bad you know but when i got in there it was like ralph humphrey joe picaro casey sherrell efren toro um paspanos it was i mean uh, chuck flores i mean it was an all-star lineup of teachers and i didn't care I really didn't. I remember. I remember, like my buddy going, "Like, can you believe we're getting we're getting taught by Ralph Humphrey? He played for Frank Zappa? Are you kidding me?" I'm like, "That's awesome. Check this lick out." You know, it was. Like, <laughs> I I honestly, I mean, I appreciated them, but I was yeah. just so focused and so leaning forward on I'm going to get in a big band right away and I'm going right. to be a rock star. I just had this thing in my head, like I was, and uh, uh, and then I, I'll never forget playing my first class there. And I just thought I just pummeled the earth. I was like, man, I got off sweaty and just, and I, I, the teacher comes up to me and he's like, Hey man, do you have a metronome? And I go, no. And he's like, yeah, you need to get one of those today. <laughs> and I just remember you talk about tail between the legs and just like, Oh, that one hurt. He's like, man, your timing, you, you're really speeding up a lot at the end. I'm like, yeah, but did you, did you see those licks? And he's like, those licks ain't going to get you a gig, pal. And I'm like, yeah, but, and I just was relentless. And then I found myself, I got pummeled so many times, like Steve Houghton's sight reading, you know, because my reading was not good when I went there. And I found myself kind of like, I got so intimidated by all the greatness of the teachers. Instead of embracing it, I kind of, it was me and it's one of those Swedish guy running to the only two double bass labs available at the school. And would sit there all day, you know, just yeah. doing our thing. And I found myself kind of avoiding some of the classes. And, and it, you know, everyone thinks like, oh, you taught at PIT. You must have aced your classes. I really didn't. I mean, hmm. I would get 76s on my reading. 
just to pass. Yeah. You know, um, um, so it, yeah, it was a lot, you know, and I, but for years and years, I went back to the curriculum and really embraced it. And then it hit me like five years after I graduated, like, wow, that was a lot. And I should have spent more time focusing in, in on this because now I have to do it now kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and then you ended up teaching there. Well, here's the thing. When I went, it wasn't a rock program. Like I said, it was all jazz, Latin, funk, reggae, everything. So I was always complaining about it to Ralph and Joe, who were the heads of PIT at the time. They mm -hmm. do Llama now, uh, LA Music Academy in Pasadena. Gotcha. Um, they, I was already saying, like, you know, what about this? You know, they always say, like, Ray, put your left kick drum away. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to get a gig like that. I'm like, well, what about all my favorite drummers that play double bass? Yeah. So it turns out, a couple years went on, and I was getting a couple lessons here and there. I was I was starting to teach. I was starting to get a couple gigs. My independent or my band got signed to an independent label, Nine Point Zero. Um, it's um, and all the stuff. Little things were starting to happen, but nothing big. Well, Ralph called me and says, "Hey, man, we're getting a lot of um, students wanting double bass and rock classes. If you present us with a curriculum, we'll hire you." Mm. And I was like, but I'm 22. Yeah. And he's like, that's okay. It's, you know, you'll just start out a couple hours a week. So I did. I started three hours a week. Yeah. And um, just writing really basic double bass stuff. And the class was a hit. And then uh, and he asked me to do a live playing workshop where the, the drummers were asked to learn two cover songs a week because there's a lot of chart reading, but not a lot of um, memorization of songs. Okay. So... I would pick a Nirvana song and a Zeppelin tune and make them learn it. And, and that led to 33 hours a week. Yeah. So I was, I started teaching there quite regularly. I would get a tour and then have to leave the school. I'd come back, get another tour, leave the school kind of thing, you know? Yeah. When I was at school, um, there just seemed to be a, uh, this, this trend towards looking at, pop and and rock as more legitimate um, subjects to cover because this was part of the landscape and, and it was just you just couldn't deny it anymore uh, teachers sure. it was all it was all you know it was classical then jazz had to make its entry into um, the curriculum in the 70s and it was unheard of and then by the time we went to school you're like yeah well, of course jazz that's legit you're supposed to do this um, mm -hmm. but now there's a focus on covering everything uh, because it's it's part of the landscape of of of, of the music business. And, and that's the other sure. question I have is, is as you were, I, I realize you were 22 at, when you were teaching around that age, but you had probably got so much experience within a short amount of time being there that I'm wondering how much non-drumming teaching you impart how much experience or advice you imparted upon some of these students did you feel like you were in a place that you could start doing that imparting like well i was pretty i was green but uh, you know my mother's she retired now but she was a principal of three schools and she was a teacher for many many years my uncles my aunts there's so much education that runs in my family yeah. um that i would get things off of them through the years even in my childhood um I would, you know, um, so 
but you can't really, you have to experience it, of course. You know, my first right. year there, I was quite frightened. I mean, kids would come in and go, they'd look at me and look past me and go, where's the teacher? And I'd raise my hand like, it's me. And they're like, what? And then, so <laughs> I was trying to prove prove myself at a very young age, but yet I had so much to learn, and I'm still learning. You know, that's that's oh, just yeah. what it is. But but um, it was quite there, and I had people call me out, like like okay, Mister, you know, Mister Teacher, 22 year old, because I'd have 30 year old, you know, guys in there, and mm-hmm. some females that were like, I'm 10 years older than you, and you're going to teach me kind of thing. So then I found myself like playing, you know, stuff, and then I'd play it really fast, and. and a couple of people will call me out going, hey, man, uh, I'll never forget this one kid. He brought in a, a, a 11-minute Dream Theater song, all charted out. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I need help with this. Help me. And I remember looking at that chart going, oh, wow, because <laughs> I'm not a great sight reader. I'm, I'm still not a good sight reader. And I saw that thing, and I was just like, my heart started racing. I'm like, I can do this. And I'm looking at it, scared at it. And I chunked a couple things, but I got through the, you know, the two pages he wanted me to. But... But, you know, I expected that. I expected to get called out, you know, because um, they're paying good money to go there, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, my heart and soul is so much into the rock thing that that it was pretty convincing, you know what I mean? Um, right. And the more I did it and the more open counselings I would have, and, you know, people would come in going, hey, I can't figure this lick out or how do you do this left-handed thing or my left foot sucks my left hand sucks like i'd have all next thing you know you're building this vocabulary of massive essential tips you need to play in the professional world you know um and that's that's but but what it comes down to is experience you've got to get out you know in the meantime i was gigging a lot and i was playing on sessions and i was doing people's records and you know uh doing anything i could to stay active you know um that's that's your biggest advice I'd get to young up and coming drummers is you got to get out and network man because I did a lot of a lot of locking myself in a lab even after I graduated from that school for uh-huh. six hours a day I just shed all day long right. where I should have been out networking giving my number out meeting people at clubs and um, I didn't even drink a beer till I was twenty six so I wasn't the big Mister Party guy go mm-hmm. to the club and. I just wasn't that guy, you know, yeah. where I'm not saying to go party, but I'm saying go out and meet people and mingle at these establishments where you want to play because it, it will take you further. You know, you have to have the talent, but you also have to have the means to get there to the stage. In yeah, the man. And, and that comes up so many times on the podcast. It's, it's you know, people saying, look, the hang is just as big, if not a bigger part of the equation than the playing. And, yep. and especially in an environment where there's so much heavy duty competition, uh, it, you know, it's like to come in and be able to play the gig. There's so many people that can do it, but can you hang? Can you come prepared? Can you, you know, do all those things? Can you, turn on a dime if, if the, you know, whoever wants it, it, it done. And, and I, and it, you know, I always thought, well, yeah, when, cause you're, you're touring, you're on a bus, but this even comes up, uh, for a lot of players that spend a lot of time in the studio. It's like, man, you can, the vibe is just as, if not more important at a session as it is, uh, touring together. It, it, yep. You're absolutely right. And there's so many factors into that. And you don't know how many drummers, uh, I'm a ghost drummer on records that you've heard before yeah. that I can't, I've been paid a lot of money to shut my mouth because I played on some tracks wow. that are actually on the radio okay. that I had to shut my mouth and 
it, whether it be a shuffle or something the drummer couldn't play mm-hmm. on the record, I got hired as a ghost drummer, and that's the worst thing on the planet is watching the drummer that's in the band, a famous band, watching you do their track is wow. the worst thing. I mean, I, I actually hate it, and I got paid a lot of money to do that. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not saying and I'm not saying I can come in and save anybody because I can't. I mean, there's there's times where I've almost got replaced, and it's it scares you. I mean, I've right. I have light years to go on on stuff I need to work on, but there's so like you said, there's the, the, the hang factor, the just your etiquette walking into an establishment. I don't care where it's at, a club, a studio. I've seen a lot of bozo people, musicians that come in that are virtuosos, but they have no etiquette. They can't look someone in the eye and say, hey, how are you doing today? Let's make this thing happen. Let's make it great. Let's." They just have this, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to name names. But there's some people out there right now um, on the scene that can't keep a gig because of that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and it's really weird because you, you're you raised how your, your parents raise you or whoever you're raised by, you know? Um, yeah. And that it starts from there, you know, and I, I think I always thank my parents. I'm like, you have no idea just hmm. having me having me be on time for stuff and, yeah. and getting this assignment done on time and yeah. saying thank you and being cordial. And that, all that stuff really does matter at the end of the day in your in your musician life, too. I mean, it really it, it comes all back around to that. And let alone honing in, obviously, you have to be talented and you have to be. Right. Know your know your stuff, you know. But so much of that, I don't know how many times I've counted where where someone got let go because, like, man, they have no tour etiquette whatsoever, mm. and they just don't get it. And mm-hmm. it's a shame because they could really play. Mm-hmm. And it's I've yeah. heard that so many times. Or or we can't use this guy in the studio because he can't play on a record, but we're going to use him for the live thing. And yeah. So there's so many factors, you know. Yeah, there is, and and I think there's times where people they 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 confuse like this pumped up bravado to be kind of cocky as confidence that they yeah. feel like is going to push them forward, and it's like, man, it's like come in, do the job. You don't have to be weak and like, but but you can be humble and be confident, but you don't have to like try and prove yourself other than just being a good dude, uh, and yep. and 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 know your know your place and the in the organization, yep. depending on what you're doing. And, and some people overdo it. Some people, I've, I've actually heard people getting fired because they're, there's too much of the, the kiss-ass hacker. You know, <laughs> they, they, they want the gig so bad right. that they're just, they're, they're, their nose is up people's butts and they can't, they're just like, enough already, I can't take it, just yeah. chill out, you know? Yeah. So there's this, there's this happy medium of, of uh, just, just getting it. I mean, David Lee Roth, when I got that gig, that, that's a whole he even told me eight years into that gig, he was like, your mama must have taught you good patience because, like, no one really lasts with that guy. You have to be really, really a taller person, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. That was going to be my next just... question, man, is kind of the, what, what, this might be a good transition because that was, uh, that was kind of the, one of the next things for you uh, uh, with David Lee Roth. I was kind of curious how that gig came about. You know, it's one of those things. One thing leads to another in, in this business, and um, if you are cool and you're easy to work with, and pe- people want to call you back, you know, if you have the talent and you, you, uh, uh, they're like, they're, there's a list. There's a lot of guys that want to do what you do. I mean, it's yes. it's it's just a fact. When you're, especially in the in the world where I'm at, with we, you know, um, there's there's and you're always in line with these other drummers. Going, what do I have that they don't? 
You know, that's right. that's always been my thing about auditions. Uh, the Jakey Lee's uh, going back a little bit before Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, I got that gig in '94. It was my first real tour on a bus, and the whole traveling and making money, actually playing drums and doing what I love. That the gig was was like the whole like I was in line with you know 150 other drummers mm-hmm. and. I always, I always tell drummers, I'm like, learn more than you have to. Go research your artist. You know, when I when I auditioned for Jake, all all whatever 500 of us had the same three songs. Well, what's going to make you stand out from the other drummers? You know, mm-hmm. um, so let alone learning the material well. I always like to research their catalog. Like when I got the Jake gig, I already knew both Badlands records. I knew both Ozzy Osbourne records he played on. I even went and dug as far as like some of the side things he did when he was in Rats. I mean, I really went wow. nuts and uh, wow. and went, I go deep on this stuff because I wanted the gig. And um, sure enough, I walk into the audition and I say, hey man, I'd love to play Soul Stealer, which is off of Jake's second Badlands record. And he's like, ah, that's, yeah, that's a good song. Let's just, let's just stick to the three. Yeah. And the bass player started figuring out Soul Stealer and uh, Jake's going, no man, you're playing it wrong. It's down here. And he's, they're messing with it. Next thing you know, they both got off there. They were sitting down. They both got up, and it was this different energy in the room. Yeah. And next thing you know, we're jamming Soul Stealer, cranking it. Yeah. And uh, and it just it just added a whole new life. And I remember leaving, the drummers going, "How'd you get to play that song, man? What's up with that?" I'm like, "Hey, I just didn't. <laughs> don't worry right, about it." You know? Right. Right. So anyway, I got that gig, and I had it for two and a half years. You know, and it was a good experience. Um, Playing around, I did a bunch of sessions around that time and having to play on this kid's demo um, that was writing with David Lee Roth. Yeah. And um, the kid called me up and said, hey, this, uh, this these two songs that you played on, David Lee Roth heard them. And he was young at the time. And I was like, man, you're not, there's no way David Roth heard these. And <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to his house in Pasadena. I'm like, yeah, he does live in Pasadena. You know, I didn't believe him. <laughs> and uh, yeah. next thing you know... Uh, he calls me and says, hey, man, I got great news. Dave wants you to recut these songs because we cut them for instrumentals. And okay. he wants you to cut them for vocals. And so that's the next thing you know, I'm at the, in the studio, and I thought it was just a session. And um, I did the two songs for Dave, and I was I was pretty com- pretty comfortable and not too nervous because I just he was one of my heroes from way back. Right. But I just, I just wanted to play on his stuff. You know, just two songs would have been enough. And then... Um, he was asking me all these weird questions. What if I said shuffle this? What if I said play a still here? What if I said? And I was like, man, he asked a lot of questions for being a studio session, you right, know. Right, and, uh, right. The next next day, the manager called me and said, "Hey, kid, you passed with flying colors." Wow! And I'm like, pass what? And he goes, "That was your audition." Wow! And I was like, whoa, because I was just the end of my 26. I was almost turning 27. I was like, that was nuts. So <laughs> next thing you know, boom on a record and uh with john five who's you know male Manson, white zombie guitar player and um you know john unfortunately fell out early but we ended up touring a few months after that and that led to eight years of craziness right 97 <laughs> to 2005 um did yeah. did and it sounds like that you're kind of answered this question, but I kind of wondered if David had any expectations from you, kind of with his history of working with really great drummers in the past. Was there anything from him? It's like, you know, hey, when we cover this song that Greg Bissonette played or that Alex played, um, can, right. it was there like, can you do it more like this or do what you do? Well, that's that's a very interesting question because, you know, I hate a lot of times when I see drummers or guitar players, I call it wank over 
the song, you know, like, like give it too much to try to be impressive or they kind of ruin the song. Um, you, you, you don't want to blow everything. Like you, know I mean? you, you want to kind of honor what's going on yeah. in the song because there's people in the audience air jamming that they're air jamming the guitar part. They're air jamming the drum part. And, right. You know, in jump, if you don't play, you're, you're going to be shot up there. You know, it's just not mm-hmm. cool to play some crazy fill that, because you've heard that so many times and it's so repetitive. And uh, so I asked Dave straight up, just like I asked Jake straight up and we played ultimate sin and played some Badlands stuff. You know, do you want me to play it like the record? Or do you want me to, and Dave was really cool. And he says, Hey man, I would, you know, of course, honor the record and the parts, but I want Ray Luzier in the band. And I, that really, that's a really flattering thing because I know, so I have some friends out there that are playing arenas right now that have to play exactly note for note like the record. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the gig they got, and that's what they want. And that's what, if you're getting paid, the artist, you know, the artist is paying you like that, and you want the gig, you pretty much have to do that. So right, right. that was pretty pretty cool with Dave letting me do what I want. And I, I'm a huge Alex and Greg Bismet fan, and uh, right. so it was it was a pleasure playing that stuff. You know, I grew up to it, and uh, I got to be friends with Greg through the years when he did clinics at MI, and, and he actually threw my name in for the Dave Lee Roth gig Oh, wow. Years before I got the gig, which was mm-hmm. I was blown away, you know. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like I, I just watched the performance on YouTube the other day of us playing the Van Halen song Mean Street on mm-hmm. the Carson Daly show, and yeah, I haven't seen that in years. And, uh, <laughs> it was it really I really had a smile on my face because I was I was proud of it. A lot of times I cringe when I see my stuff, yeah, yeah, <laughs> my videos yeah. like. I'm always going, oh, crap, I could have played that better, or I sped that up, or I'm not my worst critic. But I was actually I was actually smiling, because I was singing good, the timing was good, that we all had, like, a good groove going on. I was like, oh, man, I'm proud of that, you know? So that's yeah. pretty cool when you when you look back, and, and uh, that was, like, 2002 or three or something like that. So, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, but then, you know, and going back to the etiquette thing, Dave, Dave, I love the guy to death, and he he taught me so much about the entertainment business, and not just being a drummer, but being a performer in a band. You know, mm-hmm. he's like people. He's like lose ear people pay good money to see. You. Don't just sit back there like you're, you're waiting for the bus. Give him a show. You know, he always, <laughs> he always tell me. So you're like, yeah. Sorry, I have to I have to fall into that every once in a while. But uh, he would he would say stuff like that. And it would make what do you mean like sitting back waiting for the bus? I'm like. You know, he always say like, give me little little pointers here and there. And then he's the one that kind of got me more into the visual aspect of playing. Yeah. And, and people do watch the drummer and mm-hmm. uh, make it exciting. Don't just sit back. I mean, it's, if the gig requires you just to lay back and groove and, and don't be a showy thing, that's great. But I've been fortunate to be in some bands where I can uh, ham it up a little bit and be a little bit more visual, you know. Yeah, you know it's funny. That's been kind of a a, a a reoccurring topic as as you know this last couple of years as we've been talking more about that and kind of this this uh, performance like to rem- to remember that we're up there to entertain and to perform. And I think um, personally, I resisted that so long. I mean, so many of my heroes that I grew up listening to and watching, they weren't real flashy players. Um, right. And and yet there are times that I go see somebody, like for example, like I love Abe Boreal Jr. and it's like he yep. can ham it up behind a Paul McCartney song, 
And you're like, wait a minute, yep. this doesn't have to be like really heavy music for it to happen. I mean, he's in an arena and you have to be seen. Of course, he's a big guy. He can be seen just about anywhere. But yeah. the point is, yeah. it was fun and it was entertaining. And I'm, I'm like, yes, I love that. It's cool. And I'm a drummer and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a snob about that stuff. And yet I'm entertained. Yeah. If I'm entertained. I know the person next to me is. Totally. Well, that's that's you just nailed it. What I was going to say next is 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 I always think what would I want to see if I was in the audience. I always think that, and mm-hmm. uh, or I actually got into that thinking when I was with David Roth. Is like if I was out there, I don't want to see a drummer waiting for the bus. I want to I want to feel the emotion that he's feeling. I want to see, you know, you can the energy coming off of their face and their arms and yeah. everything. That's why you go to a concert. You want to feel the energy and you want to. You hear those songs loud and in your face, and you don't want a band sitting there. And now, granted, there are some, you know, I know some. I have some country drummer friends out here that they're paid to. They don't want a big. There's barely any lights on them. They're paid to keep time, and that's right. they're happy with their gig, and that's great. You know, um, I I'm, I haven't been in that situation, so I do what I do. You know, right. it's like, um, uh, and, and so that. But it's always it's it's interesting when you. Someone as big as Van Halen, you know, when, when the lead singer's telling you stuff like that, you as big of a egomaniac, eccentric, bipolar, everything I could go on and on. I have a big list of things I call Dave, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's he's very hard to put up with. But I, but I learned so much off the guy, and I, and I, yeah. uh, you know, um, I, I remember I, t- I told Greg Bizanet I was so happy. Him and his brother Matt played MI one time. And uh, I just got the gig, and Greg was so happy for me. He gave me a big hug and picked me off off the ground. He's like, "Ray, I'm so happy for you." And uh, he goes, "Hey, Greg, hey, Matt, uh, Ray just got the David Roth gig." And Matt look, looked over and goes, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> and I go, "What? What do you mean by that?" And Greg says, "Oh, he just he's kind of bitter towards him because they had a falling out." Yeah, but hey, Ray, he's just trying to change the subject. And then years later, now I know why Matt said that because it's. He's not for not for everybody, you know. That's for sure. But uh, it, it definitely was a learning experience, and I, I, was, I was come on. I was there wasn't one day that I didn't you know sitting behind David Lee Roth playing opera teacher or Yankee Rose going. But not one day went by where I didn't look out and go, "That's David Lee Roth in front of me right now." Yeah, not one time. Yeah. You, you never get used to that. I mean, I played jump probably 550 times with Dave, and I not one time that I not say that's David Lee Roth. You know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I reached out to Pete Parada. He's been on the show. Yeah, and uh, what a great guy. Uh, yeah, and I was like, uh, I was like, hey man, um, I'm gonna be talking to Ray here soon, and he gave me a couple questions to ask you, and one of them was, he goes, if he has any uh, David Lee Roth stories. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pete, Pete loves it because I sit, sometimes it would mean Pete a lot for a piece of pizza or something. I just be like, let me tell you some Parada. You know that offspring or shoe spring? What's the name of that dumb band you're in? Like, I'll just go, I'll do his whole, like, you know, spill and, and uh, have peep and stitches, you know, on the ground. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, he he's such, you can't be one of the world's greatest front men of all time and not be super eccentric and over the top. And yeah. you, you can't, you cannot have an ego and you, I mean, come on, like, you know, let's face it, you the, the, the normalcy factor if you're too normal, people don't like that. The nine to five guys, the nine to five people every day. That's why we listen to music because it takes us on a journey. It takes us somewhere else that we're yeah. not used to, or it's out of our realm, or 
And Dave just wrote some of the biggest rock and roll anthem party songs ever. And that's yes. just, you know, you can't be too normal, you know. That, I mean, but with that comes a lot of putting up with stuff. I mean, there's a lot of, like, meltdowns and because he demands certain things. And he demands it, and he won't take no for an answer. And his, his thing is when he asks for something, the answer should be instantly, if not sooner. And that's his whole, yeah. <laughs> and, and that there's, you know, even my things, like I couldn't break a snare drum. There's no such thing as like, oh, sorry, Dave, this happened. No, make it happen. Like, so I always joke with my corn guys. I'm like, they're like, you have three snare drums back. I'm like, yep. Dave Lee Roth taught me a backup for the backup. Yeah. And don't, you know, there's no, stop making excuses. That's yeah. one thing he said to all of us. And I really, it really, you kind of get, test at first because you're like come on man you know this happened that's the way it is no it shouldn't have and you have a way you can do it without making a mistake or without missing a beat or and it really messes with your head at first but if you really sit there and think about it he's right yeah. you just you know what i mean like we have a backup for the backup at all times there's always b rigs c rigs and b rigs so on the amps to the if I'm, you know jump was always on track i had Three things, three machines running at the same time. In yeah. case one went out and the second one, it's just that's just what it is. And, and uh, it's an interesting approach to things, you know. So um, that always kind of blew my mind about Dave, you know. Um, but with that comes high demand for himself. I mean, we would vacate a Ritz Carlton with 22 rooms taken because his room smelled like pine salt or a cleaning solvent. Yeah. And he would, get on, he would get on the bus and say, sorry, I put you in that toilet, guys. Huh. The toilet. I was in my jacuzzi in the middle of my room in the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> but to him, that, that, he went to some lower hotel because it didn't smell like cleaning. Stuff like that, really eccentric, strange things would happen. You know, we get a brand new bus, and the bus would, you know, just smell like a, uh, uh, he had a hypersensitive nose, so he you know, would yeah. smell like a, uh, air freshener or something and, right. and would literally leave the bus at a truck stop and he would wait to get picked up to go somewhere. It was, I mean, just crazy stuff. Man. Yeah. Um, I could write a, I could write a book on my eight years with him for sure. Well, maybe one day you will. <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll be a thing Someday. for sure. Um, yeah. uh, talk about it. Jakey Lee. Another thing that Pete asks, he says, ask him about the dog that ate the back seat out of your van. <laughs> Boy, you're rehearsing oh my god, he remembers that? <laughs> <I guess so. laughs> How the heck did you remember that? Oh, yeah, I had an old Astro van, this old Chevy Astro van. Right. And uh, I don't know if you know what a what an Italian mastiff is. You know what a mastiff is? Yeah, dog? I do, yeah. They're they're freaking horses. Yeah. I mean they're they're ginormous. Like two of your fists together is one of their paws. I'm not exaggerating. They're like you're right. they're beasts. Yeah. And that's what our singer, Mandy Lyon, the singer from World War Three, had. And uh, <laughs> I can't believe you remember that story. It's hysterical. Um, but, I, yeah, I, uh, we were in rehearsals, and, and uh, Mandy, they would not let them bring him bring that giant dog in there because he would just lunge towards people. There was no barking. There was no warning. Yeah. You'd just hear chains. Oh, my God. And the chains would be, oh, dude, it was, he only liked his master. He only liked his owner. So it was like. That thing scared. I mean, I would run from that thing, and uh, you know, usually you see a snarling dog, and oh, this dog's coming at me. This dog would just look at you and lunge. It was the weirdest thing. Just, yeah. So anyway, he's like, "Hey, man, can I put my <laughs> put my dog in your in your van till rehearsals are?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." Well, 
the dog didn't like my car too much, and he decided to eat the entire back seat. Oh my! I God. mean, I'm talking. It looked like somebody threw my chair off a cliff and and burn it, and <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was horrendous. Yeah, let alone the smell from the dog lasted like three months. And yeah, that's that's pretty funny. I can't uh, believe Pete. Uh, yeah, you know we were roommates, right? Pete, yes, yeah. yes. He he brought that up. He's yeah, like, and, and and would you guys survive yeah. an earthquake together or standing in the doorway? We were in, in the, the giant ninety four. Yeah, yep. Standing doorway or in our underwear, like four ten a.m. Going, we're gonna die. <laughs> oh and then, uh, it was pretty. Yeah, we did a lot. We went through a lot together. Pete was the first one of my first students at PIT, actually. And, yep. uh and I, and I thought I was all badass because Pete brought one of my, one of my first CDs I ever recorded, Darren the Householder, on Shrapnel Records, and he brought the Darren record up to me to me to sign, and I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is awesome!" Like I'm thinking, like this, you know, everyone has these independent records. I did. Well, I know that not too many people did, but um, I remember like whipping it out in front of the class, going, "Sure, Pete, I'll sign that for you. I'll say, bring that CD over here that I played on." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I hope that day. Yeah, uh, man, I have what a I, sweet guy. He is, man. He's, I, like, he's one of the sweetest guys, sweetest human beings on the planet, and he deserves every single thing that he's that he has today, as far as you know, success and offspring and everything else he's played. He's just a great guy. four times in eight years because I just <laughs> there was I, you'd reach a point where it was enough was enough you know I couldn't you know there was times where like four years into the gig I'm playing arenas you know we're opening for Badco and, and, and you know getting paid a lot of money staying at Ritz Carlton brand new Prevo buses I mean I just there's what more could a could a musician want you know but when you deal with someone so eccentric and so nuts like that it gets old real quick and uh yeah and it kind of crushed a lot of my <laughs> my my big dreams of of uh, touring with such a big guy because sure. uh, you know uh, and that that will happen you know your listeners will find out sometimes you don't want to meet your idols or meet people you look up to because sometimes they'll they'll crush you you know, know. in certain yeah. ways and yeah. um, and some are some are sweethearts you never know what you're going to get uh, so anyway I was looking for a way out and around year six I was really looking for gigs I was like man I need to get something. Time, I, you know, I wanted. To, I still wanted my original bands to do something. I, I always dreamed of being in a band like Corn or, you know, STP and all these bands that, that started from nothing mm-hmm. and all of a sudden appealed to the masses and sold millions of records. That's a, that's most musicians' dreams, you know. Right. Um, so I was really scrounging with my original band, even through David Lee Roth. We were writing and playing clubs around my tours and had a band called Freak Power Ticket. And there was only two. 2,000 of those CDs printed. Um, every once in a while, a corn fan will bring one up to me to sound it blows my mind. Wow. But uh, um, I, we stopped everything to, for that band, you know, um, to really try to, we were selling out clubs and we we showcase and then the record labels would be like, well, what are you? You have a Seattle song, you have a heavy song, you have a pop song. We're like, we're us, give us a producer. And no one really took the bait. No one really mm-hmm. gave us that chance. So um, obviously I was making a decent living playing with national acts, you know. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> fast forward, I, I played on two of Billy Sheehan's solo records, which I'm one of the biggest Billy Sheehan fans on the planet. Yeah. He's moving to Nashville, by the way. He just moved here, actually. Okay. Uh, yep. And um, he just, I mean, I, I've loved Talos. I've loved everything he's ever touched from, you know, 
well, obviously Mr. Big and Rough. <clears throat> but uh, I played on Billy's records, and we had such a great time in the, in the studio. And he's such a it was intimidating for me because I mean, come on, the guys played with Dennis Chambers, Terry Bozio, Pat Torpy. Uh, I mean, dude, his his catalog of drummers that he's played with is just so vicious yeah, yeah. and amazing that I was like, what do I have to bring to the table? But I, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm in the studio with this guy that's played with all these. What's he gonna? But it turns out that he he digs my feel and he digs what I bring to, to his songs and so much that he asked me to do another record. So I'm on Cosmic Troubadour and uh, Holy Cow. I'm wow. very proud of those records. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we played, the, I got asked from Sabian to, to do the Sabian Live show, which is at the NAM that happens out in Anaheim yeah. every January. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those that don't know, it's a ginormous music convention uh, right. that happens. And it, people from all over the world come to meet and there's, Every product under the sun there to showcase. Everyone wants to brag about the, when they're coming out. And there's also a ton of great artists that play. Well, they asked me to play, and at the time, Toshi Hiketa, uh, one of my best friends from, from Osaka, Japan, was in the David Lee Roth band with me. And uh, I said, Toshi, let's put together this crazy fusion thing and to play at NAM because I don't want to play just rock songs. I want to play Odd Time. I want to spice it up, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, and he's like, well, who are we going to get to play bass? And I just happened to run it by Billy. I was hey, man, we're going to play this thing. And he said, I'd love to. And I'm like, oh, wow, this now it's on, you know. Yeah. So uh, we started rehearsing, and it just was so fun, and, and playing all of the stuff. Of course, songs off of his record, and um, we played Shy Boy from Talos, and it's just some covers and just some great things. And uh, on that bill that night was um, a Farm Fur, which – featured Steve Ferroni and the DeLeo brothers from Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. Well, um, we all go to soundcheck, and I'm a huge STP freak, and uh, Robert and Dean DeLeo are back by the soundboard as we're soundchecking, and I'm like, oh, God, they must hate us, because we're just, it's just, how many notes can we fit in right. two seconds? And <laughs> just Shredosaurus, and, and uh, they were nudging each other and pointing, and I'm like, oh, this is, oh, all right, well, that's why we're here, because everyone's different, and this Farm Pro was total folk and just 70s awesomeness. And uh, anyway, Robert and Dean pulled me aside and said, Hey, man, uh, you know, what are you doing right now? I said, Well, I'm with the David Lee Roth band, but I'm trying to, I'm looking for another gig. And, and they said, Well, we just started a new band with Richard Patrick from Filter. And I went, Oh, man, I'm the biggest Filter fan. Are you kidding me? I go, Please let me audition for you guys because I'd love to check that out. And they, they're like, Oh, you're auditioning. All right. I'm like, What do you mean by that? They're like, well, we're looking for this. We want some fire. We want we want a whole new energy. And, and uh, I go, you guys like what you just saw at Soundcheck? And they're like, well, it's it's a bit much, but we love your passion and your fire that you, you nice. bring up there. And I'm like, yeah. I was blown away. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, they had, there were a bunch of guys were playing with them: Jason Sutter, Brian Tishy, a bunch of bunch of heavyweights and uh, and lo and behold I, I ended up getting the gigs and uh, I'm very very proud of that record um, yeah. you can still get it it's actually on iTunes now um, unfortunately we short lived um, we were the guinea pigs on firm records Okay. and uh, they didn't really know what to do with us they put us on a bunch of late night shows put us on some small tours but mm-hmm. it was kind of hard to break a side band like that and uh, which at the time was the main band you know? well, and I, and I have to say that that's probably was Army of Anyone was my introduction to you. Um, I oh, think cool. that, that's when I first uh, noticed you know it kind of in the drumming world 
in Modern Drummer and other things like that. It's mm-hmm. like, what? Who's this guy? He's he played with. Well, you, and you with you saying that, I have to say because I never really say this in interviews or podcasts that Dave kept us under the radar. He didn't want us in in the press. So every time I'd get asked for an interview from a drum magazine, I'd get denied by their management, by mm-hmm. Dave's management. Mm-hmm. And so that really that really hurt me career wise because uh, here I am playing arenas yeah. in front of. 15,000 people and no one knew who I was interesting. And that really, yeah, that really kind of killed. That was another reason why I was looking to get out. Um, when Bizonette, Sheehan and Vi got the gig, they became instant rock stars. They were right. on the covers of everything. Yeah. Who's replacing Van Halen? Who's a boom. They were instant stars. So Dave wanted us to keep under the radar. He paid us a lot of money not to get out there. And I didn't mind it the first couple of years. I'm like, you know what? I could be doing worse things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, so it's funny you brought that up because I, that's mm. a lot of people did discover me on army of anyone. Yeah. And that only sold 150,000 copies. And, but I still got recognized because I was in the press yep. as their drummer. Yeah. You know, I could do interviews. I could do all that stuff. So right. that's, a, that's an interesting thing about the eight years of like, who's that guy you know yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, anyway I get the gig it's we do some tours it's short lived well the firm also managed court and like I said being cool to people staying cordial staying approachable all that stuff matters because every time I go to the office in Beverly Hills I'd always see corn stuff sitting there, and I'm like, man, what are they up to? And, hmm. and uh, yeah. uh, the, my manager would say, they got some guy doing the new record, Bozo or something. I'm like, yeah. Bozo? Yeah. And he goes, Bozio, Bozio. I'm like, Terry Bozio is not doing the new corn record. He goes, yeah, he's got like 87 drums or some shit. I'm like, that's hey, Terry Bozio. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait. He did, let, me, let me step back here. What happened to the original drummer? Oh, he quit and whatever. But they don't have Terry. But yeah, this, and the next thing you know, he shows me a picture of all of Terry's drums with Jonathan Davis sitting on his drum kit, and I was like, "I'll be." He's doing. He's down there. So I'm like, yeah. "Well, this is going to be awesome" because I'm a huge Terry fan. Yeah. And um, uh, it was short lived with Terry. There were some bad business decisions I heard. So unfortunately, Terry didn't end up playing the tour, but he did do a bunch of the tracks on that record along with Brooks Wackerman, and okay. who's now avenged. Jonathan Davis actually played two songs, drums on there. He's a really good drummer. Um, so, uh, so anyway, fast forward a little bit more, you know, like see the demise of Army of anyone. And um, now Joey Jordison's doing the new corn tour. I'm like, I call my manager. I'm like, what's going on, man? They got Joey doing the tour. Bozio did the record with Brooks and Mike Borden filled in a few years back. Like what's going on? And they're really looking for a solid drummer. They just can't find anyone. And he made a guilty. He was, you should go up there and go play with him. I'm like, yeah, right. I got long blonde hair, no tattoos, no, you know. And, and he's like, well, they really dig that Army of Anyone record. I'm like, yeah, I'm flattered, but, you know, what am no well. I just, we kind of blew it off. A couple weeks goes by. Now Army is pretty much done. And I call him up. I'm like, hey, man, I'm getting a little scared. Can you put, put the feelers out that I'm looking for something? And he goes, I'm telling you, man, Joey has another three gigs. And I and why don't you go up and play with with the band? Yeah. And I'm like, you're serious about this? He goes, yep. Yeah. He goes, I think you'd be perfect for the gig. And uh, uh, I go, well, I'm starting a drum clinic tour on the West Coast, and I'll be in Portland, Oregon here. I'll be Seattle here. And he goes, perfect. He goes, they're playing Seattle the day after you. Uh, yeah. Why don't you just stick around? 
and play with them. So here I am in an empty arena. Uh, they told me to learn six songs. Of course, I learned 33. Right. Because right. I, I yeah, again, do, always do more than you're supposed to. That's my theory. Um, and I just got really try to get as much of the catalog down as I could, especially the new record because Terry was on it. Uh, you know, I show up to an empty arena. They went to be this really bad DW kit that was beat up. And uh, the crew's looking at me like, who the hell are you? Why are you here at noon on the last day of the tour? And uh, I said, hey, man, I, never, I was told to show up and play a couple songs. They go, they go the band's not coming, dude. I'm like, oh no, yeah. I, I was I was told they were, and in next thing you know, it's an hour and a half later that Monkey shows up eating a sandwich. Man, we're sorry, bro. It's just the last day of the tour. And I'm like, that's cool, whatever. And uh, Fieldy shows up, the keyboard player at the time, and, and I'm like, he goes, what do you know? And I hand him the list. And he goes, you know all these? I'm like, kinda. Yeah. So you can actually watch my audition. It's on YouTube. Yeah, uh, seen a little of chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and that was weird, man, because I really didn't think that I fit with those guys, and I didn't, even after I got the gig, uh, I didn't think I fit with those guys for years. I thought it was just a hard gun, yeah. and then, and, um, you know, I played the six songs, and, and uh, they said, you got the gig, welcome to Corn, we'll see you in Dublin. I was yeah. like, what? Nice. <laughs> so next thing you know, you know, 36 countries in four and a half months, that's when we did the first tour, I mean, it was insane. Um and then it just kept going. And then in 09, the manager pulled me aside and goes, they don't want you going anywhere. And I says, I'm not going anywhere. And they go, no, let's figure out some paperwork. They want to get you in. I'm like, into the band? I still was in shock because I was happy being the hard gun at the time. You know, I was totally, uh, I mean, we did some sick, sick touring in, in places I never thought I'd ever be, like South Africa and Dubai and all these crazy, you know, Israel. And so next thing you know, I'm signing a contract to be a member of the band Corn, and that's when it really hit me. I'm like, yeah. "Wow, yeah, this is these these guys sold two, 42 million records. They've kind of paved the way when everyone was doing trying to copy other bands. Corn said, no, 'No, we're going to sound like this and be unique.' And, yeah, and it just, you know, I'm like, what though? I was kind of still intimidated. As much experience as I had, I was like. And the fans are diehard, and I'm a fan too. I right. get it, man. I don't want to see some new guy in my favorite band. Oh, so I was going to ask you. I mean, uh, did you ever get any pushback from any fans, or like, was that a weird transition? Pushback. <laughs> I got hate mail, death threats. What? <laughs> really? Oh, dude, you don't even know, dude. There's corn to a diehard corn fan that has all five members tattooed on their backs, uh, all the album covers going down their legs. I mean. There are some scary, scary diehard fans out there. And my first couple of meet and greets that I went to in 09, people would go up to the booth and go, Jonathan, you saved my life. And, you know, you don't even know I was contemplating suicide. And your lyrics got me through such a hard time. And I, and Monkey, you don't understand. Do what you understand. And they'd get to me. And I swear they would just stone face nothing and keep walking. Like they I didn't even, they didn't know who I was. They didn't care who I was. And they just, I mean, dude, literally, like, years into the gig, uh, I had people come up to me and meet me going, you know, I freaking hated you, man. And I'm like, why would you hate me? What'd I do to you? And they, they, but they would literally come up to me, I freaking hated you, but you know what? I love you, man. I've accepted you. It took me, like, six shows, but I, I think you're a great asset to the band. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad I proved myself after you seeing me six times, uh, bro. But, I mean, that dude, it's... <laughs> 
That's amazing. <laughs> no joke, man. Yep. That I mean, is it's, amazing. It's, uh, and I, I would tell people, if it wasn't me, it's going to be someone else. I mean, the band's going to live on. I'm yeah. not saying that I was Lord King. I would be spotlight for corn, and I would, they were just waiting for me. No. If it, you know, if I wasn't here, guess what? Someone else would be doing it with a smile on his face. Yeah, and, yeah. Because the band's going to live on. You know what I mean? Um, so... But it took me years to get my niche in the band to really get the, you know, what they're all about. And these guys are, are the opposite of schooled guys. They don't even know what the C chords are on their guitars. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> there's, but there's a beauty about what they do. And, right. And there's a magic about when each one of those guys picks their instruments up or John Davis sings. It's like no one sounds like that and no one still sounds like that after all these years. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I had a birthday party in Tarzana, California, in the valley when I lived out there at the time for my one-year-old at the time. She's now six. And yeah. I, you know, L.A. is the land of the flakes. You invite like 100 people, 15 will show up. That's mm-hmm. just what it is. I mean, L.A. is a weird, weird place. I lived there for 27 years, and you don't quite get it unless you've lived there. Um, I still love it. I have a love-hate relationship with it. But anyway, I invited all these people, and I started going through my, quote, rock star list of people and, you know, that have kids and appreciate kids and, and uh, and thinking they'd never come in a million years, you know. Um, and the next thing you know, Billy Sheen knocks on my door. Dean DeLeo knocks on my door. You know, uh, James Lomenzo from Megadeth and White Lion and all those bands. Next thing you know, um, George Lynch is there. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is... Well, then they're all bringing presents for my kid, which was the coolest thing ever. That's you know, awesome. um, you know, I'm, I'm growing up in Pittsburgh waiting in line for docking tickets, and the guy brings my kid a present. I know. That's yeah, great, man. <laughs> So, uh, and Doug Pinnock shows up and I'm like, you know, everyone's doing the lot. The party's over and we're in my little studio, uh, which I still own out there. And, and, and it's just me, Doug and George. And we're sitting there and, and George is picking up my guitars. I'm kind of a closet guitar player. I kind of a hack, but I just riding up to play songs and mess around. And, and George is like, what is this thing? It's like five extra frets long and it's, it's tuned in B and I'm like, I don't know, man, it's just some weird thing to check it out. And it's just, and I looked around and, and uh, George goes, wow, this would be a great lineup for a band. We should put a, we should put a band together. And we all started laughing because it was so not going to happen, you know? Uh, and uh, lo and behold, um, George kept calling us going, Hey man, you know, I, I listened to dog man again. And Doug's one of the best singers on the planet. I go, I agree with you. I, I, I'm one of those Kings X fans that would fly to, Vegas to see King's X and drive to San Diego and fly to San Francisco because I'm such a huge King's X fan. And um, George kept calling us, okay, I have this weekend off, Corn's not playing, Doug's off, let's get together right. And that's what we did. We just we just 
sometimes it seems like a good idea, and then when you get together, nothing happens. But this was the opposite. Yeah. Every day we got together, we'd complete a song. So that's the rule with KXM. Everything's written in one day, and not one note is brought in pre-written. Mm. And we leave with completed songs, which is crazy, I know. But that's that's the formula, and we've done the first two records like that. Um, of course, there's vocal overdubs and guitar mm-hmm. leads, but mm-hmm. basic tracks are all cut and written in one day total. So that's awesome. There's a there's a beauty about the spontaneity of it, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and and so especially Scatterbrain, the new record, it was even crazier because there was times where we did 13 songs in 12 days. I mean, we literally booked wow. 12 days studio time, not yeah. one song written, not one note, not one groove. So it was like, there was times, I'll be honest, like it would be five or six o'clock in the evening and I'm like, this is not happening. We're actually going to fail today. And all of a sudden, Doug would go, wait, put this part here. George, go back to this. Ray, go back. The next thing you know, boom, a song is born. It's 6 p.m. I'm tracking drums for it, for the record. Yeah. I mean, insanity. And that's why I'm so proud of these two records. Uh, And there's great bundles at Rat Pack Records. Rat, can you say it? Rat Pack Records uh, dot com. There's all kinds of bundles you can get and sign stuff. And um, there's a ton of really cool videos on YouTube if you type KXM, KXM into YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's a. I'm really proud of the videos we did. They're pretty low budget, but they look high budget. We had some really good crew on there, and uh, um, we're getting ready to cut the, the KXM three in, in the beginning of January. I'm stoked. The the 2017 record that came. Which one is that called? Scatterbrain. That's Scatterbrain. The, that's, that's the, the one you were referring to. Okay. Man, I was digging into that yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, it was great. And here, you're playing behind Thanks. Doug's voice. I'm like, what? A, this is a great combo, man. Super awesome. Thanks, man. And yeah. I, I'm telling you, Doug's like one of the most underrated dudes on the planet. I wish King's yeah. X were bigger than the Beatles, because like, it's one of those bands where you either get it or you don't. You know, it's like, there's diehards like myself. Like It's like going to church Like yeah. when you go there. It's like, yeah. you leave there, and your soul feels amazing. Like, in... And there's, I've turned people onto it. And they're like, yeah, hey, it's, it's all right. I'm like, all right. What do you? Do? But that's that's what music's all about. That's why we all have opinions, and that's why there's. You think one band's great? I think it's horrible. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And, uh, well, and and that's you that's, know that's uh, our um, uh, the the guy, one of the guys on our team here, Mike Jackson. He's he introduced me to Kings X years ago, and when I used to work for a production company in Columbus, we had a chance to see. Uh, I had free tickets to go see Motley Crue, but we had. We had a gig that night, uh, and, and King's X was one of the opening acts. So we went and set up for our gig, sound checked, ran to see King's X. When they were done, we left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we... Yep. I mean, it's 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 a weird thing. It's and, and, and George, and George being sixty two, I mean, I was always a Dawkins fan, but yeah. usually people are like, when you get up up in years, you're like, eh, they kind of lost their thing. To me, in my opinion, the la- the latest Scatterbrain KXM record is some of George's best playing on the planet. I mean, he he was getting ready for a Dawkins reunion tour, so he was shredding every day, and mm. just it's so tasty his leads on that thing. And I just I was literally blown away. You know, that's that's so cool. So. What I wanted to ask you about um, was working with Nick Rask. I can't even pronounce his last name. The producer. Linux. Linux. Thank you. Yep. Tell me about yep. that experience I, and this new record. I just saw Nick Linux last night at Guns N' Roses. We were both standing at the front of the house watching uh, watching Axel and 
Duff and Slash was kind of surreal seeing that's, that in 2017. <laughs> but uh, Nick, I love Nick. I mean, obviously the, his track record speaks for itself. Um, building 606, Dave Grohl Studio uh, in L.A. and everything he's ever done. I, I remember listening to the latest Rush album going, or no, Snakes and Arrows actually, the one before, going, yeah. God, Rush sounds like they did back in the day, there's this new energy. Yeah. I looked down, produced by Nick Rassionix, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when when the new Alice in Chains record came out years ago with with a different singer, I didn't want to like it. I'm like, Lane is the guy, man, that's all I want to hear. I don't want to hear some new guy. And it was great. And I looked down, produced by Nick Rasculinix. I'm like, all right, who's this dude? And then when the the Sound City movie came out with Dave Grohl, which yes. is unbelievable. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. um, Nick's the one that kind of broke down because he got so emotional about how can this be over kind of thing because that's just their food and their life. And so anyway, um, as we always do, we have a meeting about the producers, who's who's hot on the scene, who, should, who you think fits us all that stuff. And we go through the list and then we contact them and kind of audition them. And, uh, when it came time, I was really pushing for Nick and I would call monkey and, and head up and going, dude, this guy's so passionate about what he does. And, and anyway, we ended up getting him to produce and we just started chipping away uh, at the stone. He would weed out the, the bad riffs, the not so cool grooves and all that. And, and next thing you know, we're, we had these songs together, and uh, I mean, and it's so great because Nick Studios out here, um, where where I, me and Head live, which is Nashville, mm-hmm. and uh, I got to actually sleep in my own bed yeah. and go to record yeah. my drum tracks at his studios. We did half the record in L.A., half of it here. Okay, and uh, man, he's just such a. I mean, he's rocking out with a broomstick in front of my drums as I'm doing a take, <laughs> like just. I mean, he's just such a little kid, but his passion comes through so thick. And you're just like, he's not some guy in, in white khaki pants sitting there on a laptop going, I don't like that Ray, do it again. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's he's in it with you, man. Like he's, and, and you feel that on the record. You can feel the energy. He's like, I'd do a take where I'm like, oh man, I just, I slammed that. That's what he's like, what do you do? Did you just sleep okay last night? I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Did you? He goes, Where's that? Where's that fire you had the other day? I'm like, there's all kinds of fire on there. You can't. And I'm like, oh, that's it. And it just it get me pumped. And then I, and I do it again. He goes, Atta boy. That's what nice. I'm looking for. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you need that. You need the guy that's positive kicking your ass, not the negative kicking your ass where you feel like a uh, beginner. You know, I've had producers like that where I've yeah. left the studio, and I'm just like, oh, you know, but. Anyway, uh, but it sounded um, Nick, like he was more hand, more hands on than than other producers you've worked with. I mean, you there's a great yeah. article in Modern Drummer, and you talk a bit about that, uh, how he was, you know, getting you to tune your drums, and and talked about uh, there's a hi hat thing that you were doing, and, and I know what you're talking about yeah. because depending on how the drums are being recorded things that we do that we become comfortable with or maybe more instinctive to our own personality, it it. it it, it comes under the microscope with a, with in the studio. Sure, yep. And it, and it's and he broke some habits, man. That like I mean, it's funny because I, I do this this up sixteenth note hi hat thing. Uh, it's just I've done it since I was. I hear cassettes of me when I was nine, and I did it. I mean, it's just something that's a it's a percussive you know fill in thing that I do when I'm on the ride or crash. I never just play the crash or ride. I always have this little shimmy going on. And I've done it. It's on all every single record I've done. It's on, you know, it's just something I do. Yeah. Well, 
Nick was like, hey, man, you're doing this hi-hat thing. I'm like, hey, yeah, that's kind of funny, bro. That's just something I do. He goes, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, um, you don't understand. I kind of, it's just, I have to do it. He's like, no, you don't. Yeah. And I was like, oh. So I swear I had to put a T-shirts on my 18-inch floor tom, which is on my left, and I had to put my hoodie over top of my hi-hat. And we did the take again. I hit the hi-hats, but you don't hear them on the recording. And you know what? He was right. It grew so much harder and so much better in those parts. Yep. And it just and he's like, listen back and listen to the take before. And I'm like, dude, you're so right. Because it's just, you know, it's almost like an interruption of what's happening in the group. And so I love producers like that, that bring out the best in you and hear stuff that you don't hear that is going to make the song better. And sure enough, one of those songs is the Grammy nomination we got for Rotting in Vain. It's That's the amazing. first video we made. And, and so I'm going to call him up and go, hey, dude, it's, it, you blocked me from that hi-hat thing. Maybe get, maybe get a Grammy nom. He's like, That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, and then we, you know, you have to have all the elements lined up. I mean, Josh Wilbur mixed the record and he did just a stupendous job. Getting, mixing our band is the worst. I don't even. I would never want that job because you have seven string guitars tuned to Z flat. You got, you got drums. You got all this stuff trying to poke through. You have programming. Yeah, it, there's a lot of crap. I mean, Josh Wilbur really, really nailed it and captured the sound of the band. I mean, you put Serenity of Suffering in, and you turn it up. That first 808 hits. It just boom. It's on. You know? That's awesome. That's awesome. And that's the the more recent record, the latest record that's been out. And yes. it's, it's been nominated for a Grammy. Yeah, and it's and it's still doing really great. We have a new single called Black as a Soul that's yep. climbing the charts. We thought it was kind of dead in the water, and all of a sudden, uh, 70 stations added it, and next thing you know, it's it's getting a ton of play, and uh, uh, it's pretty cool when you when you riding around in whatever state you're in, you turn on the local station and hear your new single playing. There's nothing, no better feeling than that, you know, um, especially in 2017 when, right. when uh, music business is in a, such a wacky state. But um, the fans are requesting it, which is, that's the, that's what you want. You want people to love your song and want to hear it. And yeah. uh, we have a great, we have a great video for that out. I want you to check that out on YouTube yep. uh, for Rotting in Vain, Black as a Soul and Take Me. So, yeah, the the lady with no face. I, that I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, cool shots of you, it, man. It, it, it's really cool. It, it, it's funny. They, it, it, she's you know she's a model, full blown model, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they you always do parts in succession. So she was just finishing as the band arrived for the Black Is the Soul video, and uh, and uh, Monkey goes, "Who's the hot girl here?" And and uh, and, and the producer goes. Oh, you're not going to see your face because we're going to cut it out in the video. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there Pretty you go. Funny. <laughs> yep. Music's so much more powerful than people yeah. perceive it. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I like this. I like that. But they don't realize what it it really carries you through life. It's a. It's a. It's a. You know, I see it just when I joined Corn. You know, this, I'm starting my 11th year. Last month, I started my 11th year Amazing. with the band, and yeah. and it's like I see stuff. All people are all over the world. The music's such a universal language; it brings everyone together. Doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter what color you are. It has one common thing, and that's emotion and and drive and passion and everything that gets you through life and. People are, are, you know, I always tell people I'm a lifer in this. This is what I'm going to do, whether I was 
rich poor, whether I was in a famous band or non-famous band, I have to do this. There's nothing else I, I want to do and, you know, that I would rather do. And when you, you interact with the fans and you see how much it changes their lives, and some are more extreme than others, but it's such a huge deal. Um, um, like you said, albums when you're growing up and you relate to, um, you pull them out and it takes you back to a childhood memory or something where you're like, whoa. You know, uh, it's so powerful. It is, man. Well, I mean, you, you say whether you're being a popular band or not, and you, this is what you do. And and, and Ray, you, you've you've been killing it, man. I mean, it's like I've oh, thanks. Heard heard you and seen you for for many years, and I know many of our listeners have. And 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 uh, and if you're in Nashville to see Ray at the Drummer Jam December fourth, uh, you'll be there for that too. Um, but. Um, yeah, it's it's an honor to to speak with you, man. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Um, of course, and uh, we just we just really appreciate it, man. I appreciate it too, man. And uh, everyone, be good to each other out there. It's a crazy world we live in right now. Right. <laughs> I'll, I should so, be around December fourth. Um, I'll I'll try and uh, say hi if you're if you're around. You coming? Are you going to be there? Yeah, yeah, I should be there. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I'm excited because uh, Billy's going to be there uh, playing bass the whole. I think the whole night, which is awesome. So, jeez, that's going to be great. Yeah. That's going to be great. Ray, awesome. Have All a great right, day, brother. dude. Talk to you soon. You as well, buddy. Right, okay, bye bye. So there you have it. There's my conversation with Ray. Uh, I want to thank him for taking some time. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, he lives in Nashville and I'm in Nashville. But it just worked out best for us to do a interview over the phone. When he was speaking with me, his infant son was in the back seat of his car taking a nap, and luckily we were able to squeeze that interview in amidst his busy schedule doing all the things that you do when you have young kids. And again, I thank Ray for taking the time to do that, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, he's going to be performing at the Nashville Drummer's Jam, which is coming up this Monday, December 4th, tribute to Pat Torpy at the Cannery Ballroom. Pat will be there in person, as well as Billy Sheehan. And uh, you can see many, many great drummers, including Ray, that night. As I mentioned before, we have a holiday special running on a Working Drummer Podcast t-shirts. Go to the website, www.workingdrummer.net, to see these shirts. They are on sale for $10.00 plus shipping so the holidays are coming up stocking stuffers all that good stuff ten dollars a shirt plus shipping so check that out um it helps support what we do here as well as patreon.com slash working drummer so again my thanks goes out to mike jackson for his technical assistance stay tuned next week for zach albetta's interview so again thanks everyone for listening and i hope to see you around bye-bye